So I see the grace of God in that I see you today. And I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to have a Bible. I'm glad to preach the Bible. But I'm glad to preach the Bible to you because I love you. So happy Sunday to you. Um, Here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to preach the Bible. Uh, The Bible is a book. It is the Word of God. There are 66 books within this one book. There are two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We are studying or making our way through one of those New Testament books, and that is the book of Hebrews. And we're almost finished with the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves in the last chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. And today, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read these Bible verses, six verses, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to do the best that I can to explain them. They're a little bit more difficult this go-round, but I'm going to do the best I can to explain them. And then before I send you home, I'm going to give you three points of application. But let's start with the reading of the Word. Turn, please, to Hebrews 13. Once you have that, please stand and listen as I read verses 9 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Father in heaven, we seek the city that is to come. And the only reason that we have these priorities is because you have placed your Holy Spirit within us and caused us to have an eternal perspective. Lord, today there are people who have walked into this assembly who do not have an eternal perspective. Lord, we understand because we were like that at one time. But Lord, you changed our hearts. Lord, would you please change their hearts so that they might seek the city which is to come and not this world. We thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about his sacrifice today, him going outside the camp for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace that we might follow our Lord, the Lord who loves us, Lord, and we want to say that we love him as well, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Point of the Bible is Jesus. Point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism, and the point of the last chapter of Hebrews is that we are to be doers of the word. 
Last week, we covered one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. That is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in it, we study the immutability, the eternality, and the dependability of Jesus. We also noted last week that this verse, Hebrews 13, 8, needs to be read and understood in context. And so we looked at the front-end context of Hebrews 13, 8, which is Hebrews 13, 7, in which we are called to remember our leaders, our former pastors, and we're to consider their way of life, and we are to imitate their faith. But those pastors are gone. They have changed in that they have died. But by contrast, Jesus has not died. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the context on the other side of Hebrews 13.8, and that is Hebrews 13.9 and what follows. And what follows in light of Christ's unchanging reliability in the text that we have in front of us today is a call for our need for stability. Our faith needs more permanence, more cement, more roots. Please remember to whom this was originally written. These were Christians, but these were shaky Christians. They were discouraged Christians. They were Christians who were contemplating a departure from Christianity and Christ and the church back into Judaism because that would have been far easier for them. And they are called to remain consistent and to not be carried away. The consistency of Christ calls for us to have a firm, fixed faith and not be carried along. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Do not be led away. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, this is the easy part of the sermon. Uh, If I were to accurately interpret what follows in our text, that's going to be a lot more challenging. But the easy part is that we are not to be carried away or led astray by diverse and strange teachings. To the best of my recollection, I don't ever remember, no, I may have, but I don't ever remember ever hearing a sermon on the passage that I am about to preach today. In fact, I don't even remember ever hearing a Sunday school lesson or a lesson of any kind on this passage. But I will say that although this is a new passage for me, I really did enjoy studying these six verses this week, and I learned a lot in studying it. But I would say that these, at least in my mind, are the least Um, popular verses in the entire book of Hebrews. But I did enjoy studying them this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a humble attempt uh, and take a shot at trying to explain to you what these verses mean. So we're just going to walk through them. There is not an outline. We're just going to look at these verses phrase by phrase. And uh, if you think it would be helpful, you can jot down a few notes. But whether you take notes or not, this is one of those sermons where you're going to have to put on the thinking cap and where you're going to have to be an active listener because it's not really easy to understand at first reading. So let's make our way through the text. Verse 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Starts off by saying, do not be led away. Literally, it means do not flow away. It is a river motif. Just like a river with a strong current, 
can carry a person downstream, uh, so too we are in danger of being carried away from sound doctrine by things which are diverse and strange teachings. Uh, Notice that these doctrines are many. That is to say, they are diverse. They come in a variety of forms. Uh, They are not all the same, but... By contrast, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice also that these false teachings are strange. That is, they deviate from the gospel. Uh, This command is a command to stay with what is not strange, to stay with the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be carried away by what he calls false teachings. Now, We could preach on this topically today and just talk about all kinds of false teachings that would lead us astray. We could talk about Mormonism or Catholicism or Jehovah's Witnesses, or we could speak about the prosperity gospel or Eastern Orthodoxy, or we could talk about humanism or hedonism or any other false religion. But the author here has something very specifically in mind, and that is Judaism, specifically Judaism with reference to dietary laws, which are contrasted with the spiritual strengthening that comes through the grace of the gospel. Again, look in verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Now, here's the false teaching that he wants them to, to try to avoid and not be carried away by, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Your heart or your spiritual life can get stronger. And the way that it can get stronger is not by ritual or by ceremonial meals meals or by kosher eating, but the way that your heart gets stronger is by grace. And the word grace here means coming into a deeper appreciation for Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, learning more about the gospel, learning more about undeserved salvation as a free gift, and not by following laws which tell you what you can and cannot eat. Now, this could be referring to ceremonial meals which they were supposed to eat, or it could be referring to dietary laws, things which they were restricted from eating. But in either case, what the author is saying here is that food is not going to be of any benefit to you whatsoever when it comes to your progress in sanctification. And Paul would agree with this. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And Jesus, of course, would agree with this. As he said in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, Whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him. Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark tells us why Jesus said this and what it means. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Peter had to learn this the hard way when he was in Joppa on a rooftop, hungry one day in a prayer meeting and with himself. And as he is praying, he gets a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it. And the command is given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 13. 
rise, Peter, kill and eat. And as is Peter's custom, he resists. And God says in chapter 10, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. So whether it is referring to dietary laws in Judaism or whether it is referring to ceremonial regulations associated with temple service and ceremonial meals that are to be eaten, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line here is that foods do not benefit your heart, but grace does. At this point, I have to pause and say, if you were not listening for the last two and a half minutes, you really didn't miss that much because I don't think that any of you are really struggling with dietary regulations. You might be struggling as I am with my diet, but I am not struggling with religious dietary restrictions. But the principle can apply, and here's the principle. And that is that people think that various ceremonies and rituals or routines will make them stronger in their faith. And usually when people think that a ceremony or a ritual will help them become stronger spiritually, it borders on or it actually becomes superstition. Stevie Wonder, 50 years ago, the heart is strengthened by grace and not by religion or routine. And so as we make our way into verse 10, he describes how we as Christians are strengthened by grace. We have an altar, Uh, not literally an altar made of stone. Uh, Look at what the verse says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, again, this is one of those difficult verses. I'll do the best that I can to explain it. Uh, When it says we have an altar, it's not talking about the wooden cross of Jesus Christ. The word altar here is a word which the author uses to refer to the sum total of our salvation as Christians in and through the death of Jesus Christ, his burial and his resurrection. Altar there is just a word for the gospel, the death of Jesus. An altar is a place where sacrifice happens. Altar means the sacrifice of Christ for sinners in his atoning death on Mount Calvary. This is not a reference to the Lord's Supper. It is a reference to the death of Christ. Now, why would he use this language? Well, the reason that he would use this language probably was because the Christians to whom this was written had Jewish friends and family members. And those Jewish friends and family members would say, your Christianity is not a real religion. And I can tell you why it's not a real religion. You don't have any altar, referring to the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. But we, by contrast, as good Jews, do have an altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Your religion, Christianity, is not a valid religion because you do not have an altar. And the author is saying, "Mm, no, we actually do have an altar, that is the death of Christ, but at that altar, the altar where we receive salvation, Jewish priests who offer animal sacrifices, are not welcome to eat. Uh, Again, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And that that which excludes the Jewish priest from eating at the altar of Christ is not their ethnicity. 
what keeps them away from salvation is that they have rejected God's only true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And since the priests who serve in the tent or the tabernacle are not welcome to the feast at the table of salvation because they reject the sacrifice of Christ, therefore, by extension, every worshiper in Judaism who rejects Jesus is not permitted as well. And and so the author of Hebrews turns the tables on Judaism, and he says, they are telling you that you do not have a valid religion. Well, I have news for them. They are not allowed to come to our altar, the altar where true sacrifice for sin is made. You, as Christians, are welcome to come to this altar. They are excluded from access to God because they have no altar except the temple, and no real atonement for sin is made there. We as Christians do have an altar. That is Jesus Christ and his gospel. Jewish high priest and everybody else who rejects the sacrifice of Christ are excluded. Or it says, as it says in verse 10, they have no right to eat, which brings us to verse 11. Four, which connects 10 Two eleven, uh, eleven is explaining ten. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside, and that word outside is going to be our key word for today. Outside the camp. In order to understand this verse, what you have to know is the Old Testament Levitical rules for the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, as it is described in Leviticus chapter 16, what the high priest would do is he would kill a young bull and a goat. And then he would bring the blood into the sanctuary and he would sprinkle the blood for the atonement of the people for their unintentional sins. Now, what would happen then to the remains of the animal? Not the blood that was brought in and that was sprinkled, but the rest of the animal. What would they do with the rest of the animal? Well, we are told in the rules for sin offerings that they were not to be eaten. They could not be used for sacrificial food. Uh, Their remains were to be taken outside of the camp. Now, what does that mean? Where Israel was, their tents, the way the tents were aligned, that was known as the camp. If you left that area and went into a region of the wilderness, you were outside the camp. Inside the camp, holy ground. Outside the camp, unholy ground. They were to take the, 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 the carcasses of the dead animals for the sin offering outside of the camp, and they were to burn them, Exodus 29, 14. The flesh of the bull and its skin and it's dung, you shall burn with fire outside, there's our word for the day, outside the camp, for it is a sin offering. So on other offerings, what they would do is they would take the blood, they would sprinkle the blood, the blood would atone for the sin, or, or, the, or whatever it was, and then they could eat the rest of it, and that would be that would, which would help to sustain the priest. They could eat the remains of the animals. But when it came to a sin offering, you couldn't do this. Now, let me just say, the information which I just shared with you, 21st century American Christians, 
probably is something that you might have forgotten or you are a little bit cloudy on. In fact, I have to confess that I myself did not remember this. I, I've, I've read the Bible through many times. I forgot what the rules were for the Day of Atonement with reference to the carcasses of the bodies whose blood was sprinkled on the altar. So if, if I'm speaking to you today like, oh, well, of course you know this, I didn't know this, okay? This, this was something I had to go back and to research. But please understand, the Hebrews, to whom this book of Hebrews was written, they would have been very familiar with this aspect of the atonement. And in verse 12, the author draws an analogy between the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and the death of Christ, who died outside the city of Jerusalem. And as I get to verse 12, you're going to need to see that the second half of the verse is a lot easier to understand than the first half of the verse. Verse 12. So, or in like manner, connecting verse 11 with verse 12, so, or in like manner, Jesus also suffered, here's our word for the day, outside the gate, that is the city gates of Jerusalem. Why? in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The second half of the verse is pretty easy to understand, and that is that we are sanctified through the blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. The word sanctify either means to declare someone righteous, or it means to separate, or it means to make holy. Take your pick, could mean all three. I lean toward make holy, but whatever it is, Jesus dies, and his blood, that is his death, sanctifies us or makes us holy before God. That is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. And if you have not been saved, the only way that you're ever going to be saved is to come to understand and believe and love the fact that Jesus shed his blood or died so that your sins could be forgiven. That is the gospel. That's the easy part of the verse. As we look at the first half of the verse, it is a little harder to understand. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What is this talking about? Well, in John chapter 19, verse 20, we read that the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Now, why would we emphasize that Jesus died outside the gate, that is, outside the city limits of Jerusalem? Well, from Leviticus chapter 16 and from verse 11, which we just read a few moments ago, we know that the bodies of the sacrificed animals on the Day of Atonement were to be desecrated and to be consumed by fire outside of the camp. So Jesus, as the true sacrifice for sins, likewise had to be desecrated outside of the city limits of Jerusalem. And you ask why? And that's a good question. Why not just put him to death inside the city limits of Jerusalem? The reason is because people outside the city limits, if you went outside the city limits, it was a way of heaping additional shame and rejection upon the victim. Remember what the Bible says about the cross itself, the piece of wood, the tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became a curse for us. So by virtue of the fact that Jesus is nailed to a piece of wood, that 
in the mind of the Jew, based upon the Old Testament and repeated in Galatians 3.13, shows that he becomes a curse. That he is nailed to a tree, to, to, to a piece of wood, is a curse. That is how he died. But it's not just a matter of how he died, but it's where he died. It's not enough just that Jesus die as a curse, but there has to be additional humiliation and rejection and disgrace on unholy ground. Why? Because the Holy Son of God, in taking our sin, becomes unholy. He became sin for us. He never committed a sin. But in taking our place, he becomes sin for us, and the only appropriate place for him to die is on unholy ground. Again, look at the Day of Atonement. The sacrifice was taken outside the camp to be burned. And the priest, the one who performed this duty, was rendered unclean. The the priest is taking the carcass outside of the camp burning the body. Do you know that the priest cannot come back into Jerusalem until they are ceremonially cleansed? Leviticus 16.28, and he who burns them, who is that? That is the priest. What is the priest doing? The priest is taking the carcasses of the bodies whose blood was given for atonement. He who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he just can't come waltzing back into the camp. And afterward, he may come into the camp. Why? Because he needs ceremonial cleansing. Jesus becomes a curse by being nailed to a tree. Jesus becomes unclean by leaving the city of Jerusalem. Also, please notice that Jesus is treated like a blasphemer. In the Old Testament, what you would do with a blasphemer is you would put the blasphemer to death. But you wouldn't just put them to death. You had to take them outside of the camp in order to put them to death. Turn, please, to Leviticus chapter 24. You have an interesting story here of a blasphemer, and Moses isn't really sure what to do. Like, like he doesn't know what he's supposed to do about this situation. So we start to read in Leviticus chapter 24, God gives instructions on what to do with this blasphemer. Here's what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out, O-U-T, bring out of the camp the one who has cursed, and let all who heard him... And by the way, he wasn't just using, he wasn't using foul language here, okay? He was, he was blaspheming the Lord. He was taking the Lord's name in vain. He was, he, was, he was cursing God. Bring him out of the camp, the one who was cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him... And speak to the people of Israel, saying, here's the rules, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now take it to the end of the chapter, verse 23, the necessity of doing it outside the camp. 
So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out, O-U-T, they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones, and thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Not only is the blasphemer to be put to death, but the blasphemer has to be put to death outside of the camp. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. Let me just say before I read this passage from Matthew chapter 26 about the accusation of blasphemy against Christ, this may have been the most painful part of the accusation which Christ received. They told a lot of lies about him. Uh, He is a wine-bibber and he is a glutton. He is born of fornication. They told a lot of lies about him. And I'm sure that every lie that they told about him was, uh, was painful. But the intensity of the lie which he is accused of blaspheming his father. Now, we do not have the capacity to know how much God, Jesus loved his father. We as human beings only have a certain, we have a ceiling to our love capacity But the love that Jesus had for his father is something that we cannot even imagine. Now, just even as a human being, take into consideration the person that you love the most and then for you publicly to be accused of cursing or slandering that person. Can you imagine the pain that you would feel? How much more when Jesus is accused of blasphemy? Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 68 But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Why? What do you do according to the Levitical law with a blasphemer? You put them to death. Where do you put them to death? You put them to death outside of the camp. He deserves death. They spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? He's accused of blasphemy. He's treated like a blasphemer. He's taken outside the camp to die. So not only is the idea of how Jesus died a stumbling block to the Jews, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, but also where Jesus dies is something that the Jews just couldn't get over. The death of Jesus Christ is not only painful, But what I want you to see and what I want you to feel this morning is that it is humiliating. It's ignominious. It is a a reproach. We are sanctified and made holy by his willingness to die on unholy ground, the just for the unjust. So one year ago today, my father-in-law died. Bill Strain, he made it to almost age 91. Let me tell you about his death. It was a dignified passing. 
His daughter, my wife, was holding his hand. She was singing to him, and she was reading scripture. His wife was in the room. Uh, He was in a hospital. He was given drugs to make him comfortable. And he quietly passed from this life into heaven in what everyone would call a dignified death. Jesus was naked. He was battered. He had no drugs to take the edge off the pain. He died alone. No, he wasn't alone. He was in between two criminals. And he is rejected on unholy ground by the city that bears the name of God. Please turn to Psalm 48. And when you hear the word Jerusalem, you need to think about the city of the great king. What is Jerusalem? It's the city that bears the name of God. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. Why? Because it is the city of the great king, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious Jerusalem. God could pick any city in the world. He picks Jerusalem and says, I will put my name right there. And in the place where God put his name, they rejected his son. Verse 13 This calls for a response. Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ died an ignominious death outside the city of Jerusalem, therefore, let us go to him, here's our word for the day, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We are called to intentionally go to a place of reproach. Oftentimes, when a passage like this will be proclaimed, the preacher, oftentimes me, will say something along these lines. Live your life for Jesus. If, if a reproach comes to you, you're going to have to bear it. But make sure that the reason why you're bearing the reproach, is because of Jesus and not because of your own sin or compromise. I think I want to take that back slightly. And I want to say that this text is telling us to put ourselves in the line of fire and to go looking for and willingly accept reproach and not just accept it if it comes our way. Did anybody ever tell you this before you decided to commit your life to Christ? Let us therefore go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Leave the comfort of where you are right now and go to Jesus. And when you go to Jesus, you go to his shame, to a place of shame. 
Now, obviously, this doesn't mean literally go to Mount Calvary. This is not talking about a geographical location. It's not talking about a pilgrimage. It's talking about going to a place where you will not be liked and you know that you will not be liked and you know that you will not be respected and you know that you will not be esteemed. It is going to the place of sacrifice and rejection and suffering. Not that we suffer in that place so as to pay for our sins, for Christ suffered once for sins. Christ died for our sins to pay for our sins. The language here is figurative. And what does it mean? It means journey outside of Jerusalem up to Mount Calvary. Not so that we can contribute to the atonement, because atonement was fully made by Christ on the cross. In fact, in the previous verse, it says he went outside the city to sanctify the people by his blood. You're not contributing to your salvation by going to Christ outside the city. It's not in any way meritorious. The only merit that we have before God is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. But what it is saying is that once we are saved, we cannot sit where we are comfortably anonymous and protected and secure and not out there in the line of fire identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. We're called to step outside of this comfort zone and to pay whatever price is required to fully identify with Jesus. And when we do, we may and probably will be hated by some. And if you are hated by none, remember what Jesus said in Luke 6.26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Let's just pause right there. If nobody has a problem with your Christianity. You may not be a Christian. You see, for us, it means to leave any shelter which protects us from being unidentified as Christians and to go all out for Jesus. In so doing, you know that your friends and your family may reject you because of your faith in Christ. I can't tell you the number of times that I have seen someone who was debaucherous and wild and just living in in the grossest forms of immorality. And they are from a Roman Catholic family and they come to faith in Christ. And immediately the family chastises them because of their faith in Christ whereas the lifestyle which they were living, which was debaucherous, was never called into question. But now, the fact that you have left the Roman Catholic Church and are following Jesus Christ, now you've gone and done it. You see, there's a price to be paid to be a Christian. And so, for the people to whom this was written, these Hebrew Christians, they were called to leave Judaism and not go back to Judaism and to go outside the camp, which was safe and familiar and socially acceptable and was the family religion, and they were to own Jesus publicly. For us, 
It means that we are to leave any shelter which protects us from being unidentified with Christ, going out to Jesus. And they are going to mock your lifestyle. And you will be humiliated. And you will be slandered. And you will be not only accused, but you will be falsely accused. Well, I never said that. There are no rules here. Identify with Christ and you will be falsely accused. A servant is not greater than his master. They lied about him all the time. You think that that you have rights? That, That people are going to tell the truth about you and that's one of the rights that you have? You don't have that right. You're going to be falsely accused. You might get fired. I think the day is coming in America where we're going to have to decide whether or not we're willing to be arrested. I I think the day is coming in America when we as a church are going to have to say, are we going to preach the Bible from this pulpit regardless of what the government will do? We're going to have to make that stand. You might get executed. You say, not in America. Eh, Maybe not in my lifetime, but in other parts of the world right now, you call yourself a Christian and they put you to death. What's being called for here is full-bore resolve to go out to Mount Calvary and pay whatever it costs to be identified with Jesus and his gospel. Not simply as religious. Well, he's the guy in the office who doesn't curse. He's religious. And not just moral. Well, he keeps the rules. Or not just Christian in a general sense. Some people are Muslim. Some people are Christian. Some people are Buddhist. He happens to be a Christian. I'm talking about identifying as a born-again, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the only way. You must repent, and unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And whoever believeth not is condemned. Jesus died in my place. The Bible is true. The Bible is without contradiction or without error. Sin is wrong. Jesus is Lord Christian. That's the kind of Christian that I'm talking about. And for the Hebrew Christians to hide in the comfort of Judaism was to deny Christ. And for us to remain silent and not rock the boat is to deny Christ. And since he died outside the city as a public shameful spectacle and sacrifice, we, if we are to call ourselves Christians, are to go likewise outside the city of comfort, and unashamedly identify with Jesus. Final verse, verse 14. For here, that is here on planet Earth, we have no lasting city. But by contrast, we seek the city that is to come. See, the reason why these Hebrew Christians could so easily obey this is because this world held nothing for them. Their goods had already been plundered. They, they, if you don't have anything, you don't have anything to lose. And the more you have to lose, the more reluctant you are to put yourself out there. So they are being reminded here, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. It's not lasting. Uh, it's fading. It's going to disappear And it's going to be gone forever. But we are looking for a city. 
Remember what we studied back in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, what did these Old Testament saints do? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, not a city in the here and now, but the city which is to come. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Or to put it another way, because this world and the comfort which it offers and the ease and the popularity and the prosperity and the advancement of this world means so much to us, therefore we are not willing to take risks because we might lose them for the cause of Christ. And so we view this city and this life as the end-all, be-all. Let's go back to my father-in-law. Guy lived to be 91, almost, between 90 and 91. That's old. That's, that's, I'm not going to make it. I'm just, yeah, make some plans, Anna. I ain't making it. <laughs> but now it's gone. He lived a wonderful life. He has no city here. Lived his whole life in Rome, Georgia. no. Nothing, nothing. The author of Hebrews says, no, this is not a lasting city. The city, the life, the existence that matters is the city which is to come. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, as we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, if this city, this world, this life holds nothing for you, then you will gladly bear the reproach and shame and humiliation and rejection for the king of the city of heaven. Let's be honest. The reason why we are so tentative to go public for Jesus is because we think we have too much to lose. So here I am, a man of great balance, a man with good leg strength, and I come to the edge of this platform, and I will perform various acts for you, which, whoa, well, why am I so bold as to do this? Because if I fall off, that's it. Didn't cost me anything. But if I was a construction worker... In New York City, when a skyscraper was being built, I would find the center of this platform and I wouldn't move. I would have too much to lose. We live as if we have too much to lose. When in reality, going to the edge for Jesus and taking risks for him in reality, if we fall, we fall into the arms of the one who will take us secure into heaven forever. We think we have too much to lose. We really don't. We have an eternal city. That should be our 
priority. So in reality, losing popularity or perceived normalcy in this life is not such a loss compared to pleasing Christ. And so what do we do? We go out to him. We go out to Mount Calvary because he went there alone for us. And he calls us to go into that land of reproach and mocking and humiliation and shame. Three application points this morning. Number one, back in verse 9, it talked about not being strengthened by foods, but by being strengthened by grace. Well, how does this work? Well, application point number one is since we are strengthened by grace, what we should do is we should employ all of the means of grace that God has given to us. God, Grace is not a nebulous thing, but it is achieved or it is experienced through means. And what are the means of grace that God employs for the Christian? Well, it is reading the Bible, and it is praying, and it is worshiping and singing, and church membership and fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. Those of you that are members of North Shore Baptist Church, You should be with us at church night to celebrate the Lord's Supper. God conveys grace by means. There are vehicles that God uses for us to be strengthened. Employ those means of grace so as to be strengthened by grace, by the gospel. Application point number two, we need to start viewing sin for what it really is, and that is ugly. A proof that sin is ugly is seen in the curse and humiliation and shame that Jesus had to bear in order to remove it. You see, if sin was simply mistakes or or shortcomings or a series of errors, well, well, then Jesus would not have had to come and die such an ignominious death as he did. But if you look at the Son of God and how he died and where he died and how he was kicked out of the city of the great king, the city that he wept over, and he was taken to unholy ground, and he was tortured by unholy men, and he bore the wrath of God, then you begin to see how ugly sin is. And since sin is so ugly, we really shouldn't be laughing about it. We shouldn't be playing with it. We shouldn't be dabbling in it. We shouldn't take it lightly. Golgotha is an ugly place for one reason, and that is because sin is concentrated there. Now, I don't think that I have to preach very long or hard in order to convince you that Mount Calvary is ugly. You know that already. But you need to consider why Mount Calvary is so ugly. It is ugly because of sin. And so as we see sin in our own hearts or coming off of our own lips or with our decisions or in the world, there needs to be a corresponding acknowledgement of ugliness. I think part of the reason why we do not repent as radically from sin as we ought to is because we do not see it as ugly as it actually is. It should be hated and shunned and mortified and exposed and repented of. All of the ugliness of Mount Calvary is there to demonstrate what sin is like. Run from it and run to Christ. Final point, application point number three, own Jesus publicly. I'm really not even sure if this is grammatically correct, but I think you know what I mean. Own Jesus publicly. 
Tell the world that you are a Christian and be not ashamed his name to bear. Tell people that you work with that he is your Lord. Go out to him to Mount Calvary. Leave the comfort of your city and go to the place of reproach. And it might cost you friends or family. You might be perceived as odd or weird, but I'm going to tell you it'll be worth it. It might mean that you invite a friend to come to church for Good Friday, this coming Friday, or Easter Sunday, next Sunday, and they might laugh at you, and you might lose a friend in the process. And I would say, do it anyway, and do it boldly. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Go out to Jesus and own him publicly. And you say, well, it's a good point. I really can't argue with you. It seems to be right there in the text. But what if I don't? What if I just stay in my secure place? What if I remain silent and just try to convince people of the love of God through the way that I live my life? Luke chapter 9, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory in his glory, and the glory of his Father, and the glory of his angels. Failure to own Christ publicly is failure to obtain eternal life. You do not obtain eternal life by owning Christ publicly, but if you do indeed have eternal life, you will own Christ publicly. Ironically, the city that killed Jesus was the city of Jerusalem, couldn't even have him in the city, but they killed him outside the city. Um, they got rid of him, all right. And he destroyed that city through the Roman army in AD 70, and he did it for that very reason. So too, if you act like you don't know Jesus in the here and now, if you don't own him as Savior and Lord publicly in the final day, he'll look right at you when you claim that you were a member of North Shore Baptist Church and that you were baptized and that you passed the interview with the elders and that you um, did this, that, and the other with reference to benevolence and charity, he'll look you right in the eye and say, I never knew you. I honestly, who, who are you? I never knew you. Go out to him, go out to him because he went out there for you. He's not asking you to go out there and to atone for anybody else's sin. He's calling you out to where he atoned for your sin. Do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ or his gospel because his gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Here's a few practical questions. Are you ashamed to carry your Bible in public? When you carry your Bible in public, do you make sure that you get a Bible that doesn't look like a Bible? I remember there was a campus ministry that I was involved with in college, and the staff members would all get Bibles that didn't look like Bibles. They looked like textbooks because they didn't want to be dubbed as religious fanatics. Now, get yourself a Bible that looks like a Bible. And you say, well, I can read on my phone. You can read on your phone, but you could also read from something that looks like this. 
Are you ashamed to carry your Bible? Are you ashamed to have a Bible on your desk at work? Are you ashamed to pray with people in public? Are you ashamed to pray and thank God for food at a restaurant? Are your conversations at restaurant tables loud and boisterous and joyful until it comes time to pray, and then when it comes time to pray, God has really good hearing, but I don't even think he could hear you because you are whispering so softly. Or do you pray and thank God for the food that he gave you? Let's take it one step further. Let's say you are the only Christian at that table. Do you pause the table and say, I'm going to pray for our food right now? Are you ashamed to give someone a tract or an invitation to church? Are you ashamed to attribute visible virtues in your own life to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, your light should shine before men. They should see your good works and they should glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if people are watching, they will see that and they will notice that you don't curse and that you don't lie and that you are honest and that you have integrity and that you will go the extra mile and that you are kind and that you are patient. And sometimes they might say to you, hey, I've noticed that you really don't blow your top, that you are patient. Do you, when they observe your good works, immediately attribute it to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you just say, yeah, just kind of was born with a meek temperament. (laughs) Are you ashamed to call someone out when they take God's name in vain? See, if you're not catching any grief for your faith, you probably aren't bold enough and loud enough. So, own Jesus publicly. He owned you publicly on the cross. Let us go out to him. Father in heaven, I pray for myself and I pray for this church. Lord, it is by grace uh, that we will be strengthened to go and to speak for you. Lord, help us to remember that we have no lasting city here. Help us, Lord, to be heavenly-minded. And then, Lord, please give us the boldness to speak for you and cause us to experience joy once we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.